Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show, we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. I reached my guest today, Farida Naburema, from an undisclosed location in West Africa. Farida is a prominent Togolese activist, and these are very tense times in Togo right now. Several people were killed in protests in recent months amid a growing opposition movement that is calling for the reinstatement of presidential term limits that are guaranteed under the Togolese constitution, but nonetheless being ignored by the regime. Togo is a small country in West Africa with a population of about 7.5 million people. It has been ruled for the last 50 years by the same family. Ayadema Nasimbe came to power in 1967 and ruled until his death in 2005, whereupon his son, Fogh Nasimbe, became president. He is ruling to this day and is seeking to undertake some moves of dubious constitutionality that could extend his rule far into the future. It is in this volatile political environment that Farida is engaging her activism and supporting a movement to enforce presidential term limits and a return to democracy. We have a very interesting conversation, not only about Togo, but also about the role of anger in sustaining an opposition movement and also the strategic value of nonviolence. We discuss how she became an activist, which you will learn was something very much that she grew up with. Before we begin, I just want to thank Frida for, for speaking with me. This comes at, at personal risk to her. Thank you for speaking with me and sharing your story with my listeners. And for you listeners out there, please do feel free to get in touch with me if you have suggestions of people I should interview, topics I should cover, or anything else that is on your mind. Thank you for being a loyal listener to this show. Now, here is my conversation with Farida Naburema. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Why am I reaching you at an undisclosed location? I don't know where you are. You're somewhere in West Africa. Yes, the reason why is because as Togolese activists, um, including me, uh, being tracked by the government of Togo, we have very serious security concerns. So we are trying to protect uh, ourselves as much as possible by by hiding from the government. Have you received threats? Oh, yes. Like I receive threats on a very frequent basis. Like I am one of the... 
I will say uh, the most known activist in the country. And for that reason, because I do get some kind of international exposure, kind of like puts me in the spotlight for their hunting. So I received threats uh, in different forms. So that is something that has been going on for a while. At some point, you get used to it, but we cannot neglect the, the security aspect, especially at times like this. Do you remember the point at which you started to get used to these threats? I will say about four years ago, four, three years ago. Um, the worst was back in 2014 uh, when I released the telephone numbers of uh, the members of parliament and asked people to call them about these reforms that, that are causing the current upheavals in Togo. So when they turned down uh, the bill that was introduced to uh, limit terms in Togo, I asked people to call them and ask them why. And uh, the government didn't take it well at all. I did receive open threats, uh, both for the majority leader of the parliament, as well as the followed by the security minister and other high ranking officials. So um, at some point, you just realize that when you're fighting a dictatorial government, you need to expect some backlashes. I just kind of like uh, try to, you know, prepare myself mentally for it. And um, I just I just got used to it. So those high-ranking officials threatened you directly? Oh, yes, directly. What yes. did they say? Things like, you know, you're very lucky you're not in the country, otherwise we are going to deal with you. Things like, if you're woman enough, just come back to Togo and then you will see what you are going to do with you. I also received a threat telling me that, uh, the fact that I live outside of Togo does not protect me in any way whatsoever. And uh, if they want to get me, they are going to get me. My family has received threats as well. Um, sometimes I receive messages with like uh, images of somebody like uh, somebody whose head has been removed, like decapitated person. And some people from the family of the president themselves also took it to social media to threaten me and to ask not only for my killing, but for the killing of every member of my family. And these are videos that are on YouTube and in uh, 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 different social media platforms. Like, how do you deal with that? I mean, that, that, it's just like, it's, it's, it's incredible to me that, that, you know, not, most of the times when I'm talking to interviewing activists, it's these threats are anonymous. Uh, yes. These are not anonymous. These are directed at you from very specific and very powerful people in Togo. Yes, yes. And they don't hide from it. You know, the thing is that impunity has been going on in Togo for so long that the activists has been, have been arrested, have been attacked, have been killed, their bodies dumped into the sea, and there has never, ever been any consequences for anyone. Uh, even when we know the culprits, even when it happens on broad daylight. So uh, officials and uh, their supporters, they feel like they can get away with everything. They, they actually even feel like they have some kind of superiority over any other citizen. So for them, challenging them is actually seen as um, a crime and they don't hide their intentions to hurt you. And when they get a chance to hurt you, they do. And they, 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 they even take responsibility for it. For them, it's a pride to even say that they were able to hurt 
ABC activists or journalists or politicians because that helps them instigate fear among people and discourage others from taking uh, such kind of initiatives against it, them. It's strategic, you know. It's it's yes. Th- th- there there's there's a plan. Absolutely, absolutely. So, c- can I ask, how did you become an activist? What what inspired your activism? I got involved at a very early age. Um, the earliest I could remember playing, um, kind of like getting more involved into the struggle was back in 2003 when my dad was arrested along with other political activists and members of his political party. And uh, I was 13 at that time. Uh, he spent a couple of days in jail. And then when he came back, because I was extremely close to my dad, I was curious to know why he was arrested, what was the motives, because militaries came to our house and they destroyed everything, pretending that they were looking for evidence to to charge them. Um, So my dad um, started telling me more about why he was arrested, why others were still in jail, um, why they have been fighting this regime. And then I and I, I I kind of like got more interested in it. I started following him to political meetings, um, and then I started participating in into political events in Togo. So that's how I got involved. Um, well, what was he doing? Basically. Like like what what was his like uh, position or what kind of what was his activism uh, about at, at the time? time? At the time, he was one of the counselors uh, of his political party. Uh, today, he is one of the vice presidents of his political party. I am not, I have never joined officially his political party because I, I didn't want to affiliate myself to it. However, uh, my dad prior to that was arrested back in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s. Basically, at every single decade, he spent time in jail. When you look at my dad's back today, he basically looks like, I'm sorry to use the word, former slave because he was whipped on so many um, occasions in prison. Uh, he got severe um, physical deformation. He's he's ribs were broken, his legs was broken, he went through several surgery following uh, the torture uh, he he was subjugated to in prison. Unfortunately, some of his comrades were not that lucky. Many of them got killed out of the result of torture in prison. Uh, it was a very traumatic moment for both their family and our family who were kind of like friends. And uh, we grew up as the children of a political convict and um, in Togo that's the kind of like worst kind of prisoner you could be. People are afraid of political activists because just knowing a political activist can get you in trouble and many of my dad's friends at the time got in trouble just because they were his friends and you had no right to visit political activists or to hang out with them or to be seen in public with them or you could go to jail as well and accuse of treason and stuff like that. So um, for as long as I could remember being a teenager till now, I have always gotten involved. And uh, as soon as I I got good at writing, I started publishing articles against the atrocities going on in Togo. And I started taking a leadership role uh, into mobilizing and sensitizing the youths about the importance to get involved and making them understand that the only way for us to deal and to 
to deal with this government and to end this oppression is to actually man up and face them and uh, stand up for our rights. It's going to come with consequences, but we, we have to pay the price. So Togo is is not a country that I think many of my listeners um, will know much about politically or, or historically. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the history of Togo and how we got to to this point? Now, I would imagine that your father's experience as an activist in the, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and early 2000s, and your experience as an activist sort of tracks a lot of important moments in recent Togolese political history. So you can give us like a, a little bit of, of a background on how we arrived at the situation. Absolutely. Um, Togo was a former German colony. Then after the German lost the war uh, in 1919, uh, Togo was placed under the French and the British mandate. Then uh, the French part of Togo is what we know today as Togo and the British part joined uh, what we know today as Ghana. Uh, in, in 1960, we got our independence, but in 1963, our first elected president was assassinated by Nyasimbe Yadema and uh, other militaries in the first military coup in Africa. Then Nyasimbe Yadema withdrew and came back in 1967 for a second military uh, attack, and um, he sized power since then. He remained in power for 38 years, and when he died, he son Fonya Simbe did a military coup and uh, became president of Togo in 2005 following his So son basically this, this one family has been in charge of the country for the last 55 years. No, 50 years. Yes. 50 years, 50 yeah. Years. Yes. Since 1967. Um and and so during the the elder but before the elder died in in 2005 I mean you're, you you mentioned your father was a political activist, presumably representing or working with political parties in the opposition to him. I mean, how was there an opposition? Was there room for political activism at all in that time? Um, back in the 70s and the 80s, there was no room at all for political activism. We had a single party system and everybody was forced to vote for that single party, which is the president's party. Um, but started, but because of the struggle of many activists in the 70s and the 80s, finally in 1990, we had a national sovereign conference after people rose up against the government like we are seeing it today. And uh, that eventually led to the establishment of multipartism. And the first uh, political parties were created in 1991 and 1992. So uh, when we got, um, so from 1967 to 1991, there was only one single party in Togo and no other political parties were allowed. However, even though we had the introduction of multi-party system in the 1990s, um, it was still a shadow single party system because um, most opposition leaders were attacked. Uh, many got killed, like Tavia Morin, for example, um, and then many others were arrested. So we were still facing brutality from the military government, even though officially on paper we are allowed to have a multi-party system. So in, in 2005, the, the son of, of the ruler, uh, Faure, is that how you pronounce his name? Faure? Four, four, yes, four, four, four. Okay, yes, he bet. So, uh, he's been he's been in power since then. Uh, how did we get to the point this summer where activists were being shot on the street by the government? 
Okay. Um, what happened is that people have been calling for political reforms for a while. In 1992, that I mentioned that when we introduced multipartism in, in Togo, we had a referendum and over 97% of the people of Togo voted for a new constitution which sets term limits to two. And that constitution says that no one should serve more than ten, uh, two terms in Togo. Eyadimanya Simbe, after making sure that that constitution was not retroactive, he managed to run um, for another two terms. And in 2002, he single-handedly changed the constitution, removed the term limits from the constitution in order to run again in 2003. Two years later, he died and his son took over and the opposition has been asking for the reinstatement of that term limit. Eventually, in 2006, they had an agreement with the opposition where the president, Fonya Simbe, the current one, agreed that he was going to conduct the political reforms and reinstate the term limits that his father removed. Unfortunately, he managed to not do it, um, despite the different uh, initiatives taken by the opposition, including protests and um, legislative elections. It did not make a difference. So this year, we have a new political leader in the, on the political arena called T.P. Achadam, who is from the city of Sokode in northern Togo, who came out with a different rhetoric. He said that we have been begging this government to conduct reforms for the past 11 years since 2006 when they themselves signed an agreement to do it, but they have refused to um, abide by our demand. So it's very simple. Let us stop asking them to make reforms and let us ask them to bring back our 1992 constitution. So we don't even want the constitution to be revised anymore. We just want our 1992 constitution to be brought back because they had no legitimacy in the first place to change that constitution without a referendum. So he organized a protest in August, 2000, uh, August 19, 2017, and a lot of people took part in the protests. They sent militaries on the street to shoot protesters and several of them got killed. That created an uproar in the whole of Togo and people said we can't keep going on like this for the government to shoot protesters at every single given occasion when constitutionally we have the right to protest. That's how people started calling and activists started calling on political parties to form an alliance and to face this government once and for all. And since August 2017, people have been protesting on the streets of Togo and the government has responded by First of all, cracking down the protests, shutting down the internet, arresting opposition um, activists and leaders. And finally, they have banned the protests. So last week, when people tried to protest despite the ban, they, they used an extreme violence to crack down the protests. They burnt down the, the headquarters of the main uh, of the opposition party of TP Achadam. They arrested over a hundred um protesters and activists and this they formed uh, a civil militia that the armed who are going home to home butchering people arresting people they even went all the way to hospitals to brutalize people and to arrest wounded protesters in the hospital who till now has still still have not received medical treatment so it sounds like politically the opposition is fairly unified right now in favor of restoring 
the sort of term limits embedded in that previous constitution, which would force the current president to to leave office, you know, sooner than yes. you would like. I think. Yes. Um, is there does are there sort of any sort of um, ethnic or religious or other dimensions to this crisis in that like the the opposition is of of one sort of ethnicity or language or nationality mm-hmm. and then other like do are do those layers of the conflict or do those layers of identity uh that often become sort of more apparent in times of crisis like this are is is that happening Togo is a very uh diverse country and uh both in the whole of the of Togo we have over 40 ethnic groups however in the past the government has always portrayed the myth that it is the people in the north that support them against those in the south because for a very long time the leaders of opposition parties were always from a southern ethnic group however with the appearance of Tipi Achadam who is from a northern ethnic group that has shifted uh, that um, that stereotype and that myth and now the protests in Togo are even more intense in the in the north part of the country, which the government has always presented as their um, as their stronghold. So the ethnic part has been deconstructed. However, they try at some point to play the religious card by saying that Tipi Achadam is Muslim and Muslim people are terrorists and Muslim people are always financed by terrorist group. But that did not work because when you see the total mobilization of the Togolese people, both in southern Togo and northern Togo, um, the Muslims in Togo don't even make up 20% of the population. So this cannot be labeled as a, a struggle of the Muslims uh, in Togo, but it is a struggle of the Togolese, regardless of their religious identity or their ethnic background. Well, that's interesting. So it sounds like the... the um opposition leader is from the same stronghold as the 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 government so that 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 yes. makes him even more i think a threat it would seem it is and that is a first which is why they have been using more repression and violence in the north than the south so you you uh tracked your own entry into activism as a teenager um you know following your father to to rallies and and sort of trying to understand the circumstances of of one of his arrests. How did your work uh, evolve as an activist during that time? I will say that when I was in Togo, um, attending meetings, participating in protests and stuff like that um, was was basically all I was doing, especially because I, w- I, was, I was just a child um, and I was just following my, my dad. However, I became more free and independent in my actions when I left the country to continue my education in the United States in 2008 at age 18. I, I created a blog um, a year later and I started writing about the abuse in Togo and I started writing to empower uh, Togolese people on standing against the government because after so many attempts, some people started giving up and lost faith completely in change. And we had to empower them, make them understand that giving up is actually not going to be the the, the, the solution to this to, the, to this problem. So from that, I went on and I also published a book titled The Pressure of Oppression, in which 
I went on and explained why it is necessary for us to fight um, any oppressive government, even when we believe our struggle will lead nowhere. Um, there's always a gain into standing for your rights in the first place. Well, well can uh, I, I ask you, why, 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 did you like, why did you come to that conclusion? Why is there a point to stand up for it, even if you think it's going to go nowhere? Is it just like you for self-fulfillment, um, I mean, at that point? Absolutely. You have the issue of self-fulfillment. And at the end of the day, challenging the statu quo, even when you don't think things are moving, is challenging the statu quo is a change in itself. From people acknowledging that they are oppressed to them refusing and rejecting the oppression is, is a change in itself. You know, uh, it's, it's a change of mindset. It's a change of attitude. And when you are in that new mindset, you are you feel less oppressed, actually, because you don't feel like you have to allow anybody to abuse you and take advantage of you. And as a result, there are less things that your oppressors are actually capable of doing to you because they know you're not going to allow it. Do you can you identify the moment that you had that change in mindset? I will say that for me, the decisive point was 2005. Following the elections in 2005, there was a lot of brutality in Togo. And according to the United Nations, at least 500 people were killed in the post-electoral crisis. And 500 people in a country of 5 million population back then, uh, that's huge. You know, it's like if the United States was losing 30,000 people during an election, it's too much. Um, following that, I just told myself that this this is unacceptable. How can they how can they just get away with this? Entering homes, killing people, shooting people, innocent people, including children. It was just unacceptable. And I vowed I remember that I vowed to fight this government until the fall. And I said, Fonya Singh will not remain in power um, for as long as he wish. We have to bring him down because even if he becomes a saint, even if he becomes the greatest president anybody could wish for, having the courage to kill 500 of your countrymen just so you can become president disqualify you to run that country in the first place. It is heartless. And that has motivated me ever since. And and you you first channeled that sort of motivation and and that um, you know anger it sounds through your writing. Yes, yes, I my my writings. I am known as being a, a very angry writer. Um, when Nothing wrong read, with that. Yes, yes, because most of the time I write to express anger. I write to express my frustration, and I write to also shock people. Because sometimes, and it has been working, and it has worked, because sometimes people need to be shocked to wake up out of their um, their laxism. They, they, you, you need something to shock them beyond the oppression they have, been, they have been going through. You know, it got to a point where in Togo, people just know that militaries are brutal. They even make jokes about it. I had friends who used to tell me things like, oh, Farida, you know, you have a big mouth. You've been criticizing the government. Just wait till you go home and you see what they do to you. And I tell them, no, you shouldn't be telling me that. You know, you should be the one telling me that because you have the courage to denounce the atrocities, if they have to deal with you because I'm your friend, I'm going to stand back by you and make sure it doesn't happen. 
people just normalize the abuse. They just they just made it something. They just accepted it, and it became part of our culture. And I'm like, oppression and abuse does not have to be our culture. We have we have the duty to change it so that our children don't grow up in the same kind of trauma that we grew up in. So, I mean, when was the last time you have been sort of the victim of of abuse in in Togo? Directly, physically, I can't remember ever being touched physically by them, uh, you know, in terms of being hurt. Even though I was in protest and I took part in protests that were brutal and I managed to run and escape like everybody else, I was I was not physically uh, tortured by them myself. But I'm sure, you know, your family members obviously have. I mean, how oh, do yes. you and, and, and I'm, I assume that you've had friends as well uh, that, that have. I mean, how like how emotionally do you deal with that? It's painful. You know, in 2015, there was this video that I made that went viral. Um, there is this veteran Togolese activist who is now 72. His name is Dr. Randolph, and he was a very good friend of my dad, a comrade of my dad. They spent a lot of time in jail together for writing against the governments back in the 70s and the 80s. This guy was severely tortured um, by electric cord in the 80s. Um, and after that, he left the country in the early 90s. So in 2015, he decided to come back to Togo to pay homage to his mom who died. And uh, he got arrested. They arrested him for no reason. Well, the only reason they arrested him for is for coming back to the country. So I went crazy when I found out that Dr. Randolph was arrested. I made a video and I threatened the government. I said, if you don't release Dr. Randolph, then be prepared to the worst because we cannot allow you to keep doing this to us. The old man has not done anything. He just came home to pay homage to his mom and visit his mom's grave. And you put him in jail. And he's an old and sick man without any consideration to his health, without any notice, without any warrant. You just arrest him like that. That video, in that video, I showed so much anger because I was angry. And I, for me, it was not fair. I put myself in the shoes of his children and I imagine my dad being in that situation. And I'm like, after all these people have gone through, in the past, just for us to enjoy a tiny bit of freedom, it is not for it's not fair for them to go back to jail again just because they want to see their country. It is not fair, and I I I was I was completely mad. I was upset. I was outraged. I attacked the government very very violently, verbally. Eventually, he got released after spending one month in jail. They released him, they arrested him for no reason, released him for no reason. He didn't even face any charge or wasn't sent to court. That's the kind of arbitrary system you have in Togo. They can arrest you when they feel like it and, and kill you if they want or let you go if they choose to. Yeah. And, and do you think your, your video contributed to his release? Yes, but my video contributed mostly to raising awareness about the situation. Most people don't even know, didn't even know Dr. Randolph at the time. People had no idea who he was. People didn't even know in Togo that Dr. Randolph was arrested until I made that video. I was the one who informed my dad that his best friend was in jail. And he's like, 
since when? What did it happen? Because I have my network who provides me with information. And they said that for real, there is this old man that they have arrested, and this is his name, and this is information. I'm like, that's Dr. Randolph. When did this happen? How did this happen? So I called his family and they confirmed that he has disappeared for the past three days and they have no idea where he is. And that's how we eventually even got the news out that Dr. Randolph was arrested. It was my video that even brought the attention on his arrest in the first place. So you've mentioned a few times now that um, the, the tone at which you write and in and, and which you make this video is, is anger. Um, yeah. Have you sort of thought, and I assume you have, about the role uh, that anger can play in in sort of mobilizing a resistance? And you know, is your was your choice to be angry? It sounds like it came naturally to you. Um, but was there something deliberate about it? Was there something strategic about it as well? Um, I will say yes. I will say yes. There, there is a strategic part to it. I have noticed myself from making videos, um, video blogs for the past few couple of years that the videos in which I express more outrage and more anger, uh, they, they, they make their way farther than the other ones in which I remain composed and quiet because sometimes people get the emotional part of it even more. When you present the information, if, I, if I'm in the case of Dr. Rondor, for example, if I had just come and say, oh, hi, people, there is this very nice old uh, physician who got arrested in Togo and he's 70, please help us liberate him. I don't even think he would have gotten 100 views. But because I came out and I brought the emotional part in it, and I denounce that abuse. I denounce the fact that we have a government that has no respect for citizens, even when they are elders, who can arrest them when they feel like it, who can violate the laws of the land without any consequences. Because I put the anger into it, people reacted to it. People were like, yeah, she's right. This is unacceptable. So the, the tone that I use has contributed to making me today... Um, the, the most known Togolese political activist on social media, people refer to me as the girl who is always mad at the government, the girl who always attacks the government, the girl who is always upset at the government. And over time, more people started following up in my footstep, even those who were like, maybe you need to moderate your tone. And I'm like, I don't have to moderate my tone in front of injustice. I don't have to be nice to people who are killing us. You, you cannot ask a victim to sympathize with his abuser. And that is what I have tried to do. Just reject the fact that we are abused and make our abusers understand that we don't have to be nice to them. Actually, being nice to them is enforcing and empowering them. And finally, people got it. When was the last time you were in Togo? Um, I don't want to answer that question. Okay, that's that's fine. Can you describe, I guess, the circumstances under which you you sort of left and and you know it sounds like you you know as we mentioned earlier you are in an undisclosed location somewhere in in West Africa. Why, like, under what circumstances were you forced to leave? I was not forced to leave. Right. They did not. They did not say you had to leave the country. 
Um, but I was pushed to leave by my family because of the constant threats that they were receiving. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, I just wanted them to have some peace of mind. And even till now, when I managed to sneak into Togo, I don't allow, I don't let my family know that I'm in the country because they get completely worried right away. Um, they get worried not only for me, but for themselves, because in the past, they were they hurt family members of politicians and activists just so they could get at those activists. I mean, how concerned are you that despite the fact that you're not in the country, they'll still go after your family? Oh, that is that is one concern I have every day. Um, but what has strengthened me was the fact that my dad himself was an activist, so he understand and he told me it is okay, um, that his work has exposed us, his children, and my work will expose them my, as my parents. Um, that is just something we, we, we have to, we have to deal with. And we, we just, we just take the risk, even though we know it's there. Well, it sounds like a proud family tradition and, and rightfully so. Yes, it is. It is. My my grandfather fought the regime. My dad did. So now it is my turn. Um, even though everybody in the family doesn't understand our position, but I'm I'm very lucky that at least my father does. So, where do you see um, these events going in the in the next few months? I mean, we're we're speaking at a time of a real heightened tension, it seems, but also at a time where. You know, across the border in Burkina Faso, you looks like you can take some comfort that these kinds of popular uprisings can be successful and, and peaceful as well. Absolutely. Countries like Burkina Faso, the Gambia, Tunisia have contributed to inspiring us. You know, prior to the revolution in Tunisia, people used to say that revolutions are impossible in Africa. And then following the Tunisia one, people said, well, that's the Arab world. In sub-Saharan Africa, it is still very, very impossible. Then when Bless Compaore was ousted, uh, I was like, look at you. You said it was impossible. So if the Burkinabe people could do it, <laughs> then we could do it. And then people saw a country like um, the Gambia with Yaya Jame, who was also one of the most brutal dictators Africa has ever known. Uh, we even felt like our case in Togo right now, uh, no, not now, in the past was a little better than the case of the Gambias under Yaya Jame. There was no way we could see Yaya Jame leaving in a peaceful way. But when it happened just this past January, for us in Togo, it was like, you know, it was like, it was like, un- it was so unbelievable. It was so unbelievable. Then at then all of a sudden we felt lonely, lonely in dictatorship. We started saying things like, now Togo is the only country left in the whole of West Africa that has a regime, that has a president who is serving longer than two terms, that has no term limits in its constitution, and that has been ruled by the longest military regime in Africa. So we are like, this can't keep happening. And it has emboldened us, especially for us the activists. It made the job so much easier to convince even the hardest of the skeptics to tell them that if the Gambians could do it, then we can do it too. It's going to be tough. So how I see this struggle going from now on, the Togolese people are more determined than I have ever seen. And I have been telling people that, you know, it's going to be hard. Getting rid of a 50 years old regime is going to be twice harder than in Burkina Faso because Compaore was there for 27 years. 
uh, it's going to be harder than in the Gambia. Jamé was there for 22 years. So our regime is twice older than theirs. We have to put in more effort and we have to make the change of government the only acceptable alternative in this country. So no matter what people come and say, institutions come and say, neighbors come and say, even if they say, you know, for the sake of peace, to reduce the killings, to reduce the oppression or the abuse, just let it go, give him a second chance. Our answer must remain no. We must stay on our grounds and we must keep fighting. And I've been telling people that the atrocities that we have been witnessing the past weeks are expected from a brutal regime. Uh, they have guns and the guns, they bought them to use against us because they are dictatorship. We need to be prepared psychologically. And it will be normal for us to feel weak at some point. Last week when they were shooting and arresting people and some of my comrades called me asking for help, I was devastated. I was low. I was completely down. But then later I understood that it was worth the sacrifice and we have to keep pushing. Otherwise, these people would have sacrificed their lives for no reason. And we can't let that happen. And, and how committed are, are you personally and perhaps the, the movement more broadly to, to nonviolence? And do you see a role for, for violence in this uh, um, uprising? There are so many people who are promoting the use of guns, especially following uh, the brutalities in the past week we got from soldiers. People were so angered, and that anger is justified. However, I will be one of, in principle, I will be one of the kind of person that when you slap me, I will feel like slapping you back. But we have to be wise, we have to be strategic, and we have to be realistic. Uh, there's no way we can afford the kind of guns and the kind of armament that government has. So thinking of having an armed conflict is out of the way because we can't afford it. We can't afford to. We don't have the resources. We don't have the know-how. We don't have the training. We don't have we don't have the leadership that it takes to run an armed struggle. So I tell people that. Just forget about the armed struggle. We can't do it. Even if we want to, even if we feel like hurting those who hurt our loved ones, we can't do it because it will fail. They have, they are more prepared. They are more equipped. Um, they have the money. They have the power, the resources, the knowledge, the militaries, and they've been there for 50 years. So the only alternative we have is to be nonviolent. So, I promote nonviolence not because I so believe in nonviolence, but I promote nonviolence because I know it's the only way for us to finish with this government. So it's not a moral choice so much as like a tactical one. Unfortunately for me, it is not. I think what we need right now is pressure to mount on our government not to use violence against us. Because mm -hmm. the last time that people tried to rise against the government, at least 500 of us were killed, and that is unacceptable. Until today, there has been no accountability, no reprisals, no consequences for such brutality. So I want the world to support us by forcing our government not to use violence against us. The moment they will not be able to shoot at us, that moment will be the end of their regime. They are still maintaining themselves in power thanks to their military um, military skills and their capacity to instigate terror by killing people um, and by brutalizing civilians. But 
if we mount pressure on them and if international institutions can hold them accountable for shooting at peaceful protesters, then we can have a way out of this uh, impasse. Uh, well, Frida, thank you so much for your time. This was inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Well, wow, that was absolutely interesting. Thank you so much, Farida, for for speaking with me. Um, a couple of things. One, you know, this is the kind of conversation that you will not hear on like Pod Save the World or any other kind of foreign affairs podcast that you might subscribe to. So thank you to premium subscribers who help sustain the show and support this kind of programming. And if you're not a premium subscriber yet, and you want to support this kind of programming, please do so go to global dispatches podcast.com and click on the support the show link. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, second quick thing is, you know, I have received criticism and I, I think fair criticism that a lot of my Africa focused content features like Americans talking uh, about Africa. And it is true that that is indisputably the case. Uh, so I was glad to include an African voice in this conversation. Uh, and I aspire to, to do more of that in the future. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.